Welcome to The Workplace, where we're hot on the trail of what makes great workplace cultures tick and what we can all do to make the ones we work in better. I'm Andrew Scarcella. This episode, we'll be talking with Kat Cole about failure, bravery, leadership, and what the workplace of the future might look like. Join us after the interview for tangible takeaways, where we'll talk about the ideas and actions we can take with us to our own workplace cultures. Kat Cole is the COO and President of North America at Focus Brands, which is impressive enough in its own right, but it's how she got there that will really blow your mind. It began with a meteoric rise through the ranks at Hooters, where she went from waiting tables to opening an international franchise at the age of 19. She then jumped to Cinnabon, where her presidential prowess turned the company around and paved the way to her current role at Cinnabon's parent company, Focus Brands. Kat was interviewed by Lindsay Nicola, a communications director and fellow doodle parent. Hi, Lindsay. <laughs> Welcome to the workplace. Uh, that's actually my vanity license plate, doodle mom. <laughs> <laughs> Worth every penny. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, Kat Cole. Now, I remember seeing Kat on stage at Sherm a couple of years back, and uh, it was impressive to see just how she could relate to a room filled with thousands of people. What was it like being one-on-one with her? Oh, it was such an experience. I also saw Kat at that Sherman. Oh, that's right. She left a huge impression on me there. Um, And I would say having the opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with her about who she is and how she approaches life and work uh, on a day-to-day basis just, uh, you know, blew past all of my expectations. She's an incredible person. Success really seems to follow her wherever she goes, and it's quite inspiring. It does. Uh, I would say the thing about that is, you know, some people think that that is just lucky, right? Mm-hmm. But I I was so impressed by Kat because she's a self-made woman. She started from the bottom, and she has worked hard every single day to get where she is. And it really comes down to her tenacity and her grit and her willingness to continue pushing. She's just such an inspiration. I know. I can't wait to hear what you guys talked about. Uh, Let's get to it. Well, Kat, thank you so much for joining us today at The Workplace. My pleasure. Well, my first question for you is one that I'm sure you've had before, but um, what can big established companies learn from startups? Um, So many things. Um, I would say the challenge is what companies can learn from startups often is very difficult to execute in a corporate environment. So um, I will share these lessons with the caveat that being in a large company, I know all too well how difficult it is to implement these things, but learning them is the first step. Um, So first is the willingness to fail and the ability to move fast and have small tests. Uh, You hear things like fail forward or move fast and break things, behaviors that might sound reckless in a corporate environment, Um, but but really they are about being able to respond to an incredibly dynamic marketplace. Uh, So that's the first. 
Um, but that is difficult in large corporate environments because you have established uh, infrastructure, legacy uh, humans that are in the system that don't know how to work that way. That's not what led to their previous successes. And most importantly, and very relevant to your audience, and often overlooked are the legacy compensation systems. Um, they just don't jive with failing, right? You, the compensation systems are structured for very clear building success, and often there is a direct conflict between what the uh, people, workplace, and comp leaders have to structure in order to create a safety net or a bubble for people to act more like startups. Um, but fast and fail uh, and, and just learn are things that large corporates can learn from startups. The other is staying incredibly close to the customer. A startup is small. By definition, there aren't big layers between them and their customer. You know, they're they're talking to them every day. They're spending time with them. They're evaluating the data behind the transactions if it's an, uh, a, an e-com company. And large companies have so many layers that what leaders learn about their business comes from the layer below them, which comes from the layer below them. And there is a great distance between those who make large decisions and the actual behaviors of the humans that they are serving or selling to. So those would be two things that I would say make startups very threatening um, to large corporations and that is behind their ability to grow in today's environment. That is fascinating. What, what would you say are some of the big lessons that you've learned from failure? Um, one is when, first is to reframe the word fail which is instead of fail, like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get fired, I'm going to get written up, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not good enough, or, or looking at someone else's not being good enough, reframing it as first attempt in learning. I heard that acronym, I don't know, a decade ago from some smart person, so I can't take credit for it, um, but I use it all the time. First attempt in learning. Of course, we're not going to be awesome at something we're doing for the first time or something we're new at or doing um, what we've done for 10 years but with a new customer segment or in a new channel or in a new country or with a new business partner or with a new leader. It, it Things are going to be wonky. And so giving permission for there to be bumps, expecting it uh, is a major lesson that I've learned. And then the odd thing is you actually look forward to those mistakes because you understand that they are a step in becoming good at something. Uh, so reframing the mindset around failure for um, myself, for leaders, and for the company culture is incredibly important. Uh, the second is to constantly share what we're learning from failure. And the third would be kind of the opposite of what people do. Question success more than you question failure. When there are mistakes, it's typically, not always, but typically pretty obvious what went wrong, or at least people believe they know. But yet when things are successful, we just say, oh, it's successful because of how we're structured. It's successful because this leader is great. Maybe not. Maybe something was successful despite your structure, despite the fact that that's not a great leader, despite the fact that that team is weak because the marketplace is just in your favor or the competition hasn't really stepped up yet. Um, I learned these lessons from being a waitress. I remember being a waitress and um, the corporate office coming in and praising the general manager because sales were up in the restaurant. And I remember thinking, that manager is a jerk. There is nothing that he or she does that is positive. But the reality was there was a lot of growth in the area. So even if we did an average job as a business, we were experiencing growth, yet they celebrated the leader mistakenly. And when that construction and that development and that growth went away, 
sales plummeted. Uh, so I've learned to be very careful what I celebrate and understand that failure often gets dissected, uh, like autopsy. Um, I like to call it at least an autopsy without blame. Of course, we want to learn. Um, but I would challenge people to question success more than they do failure. You touched really briefly there on your past as a waitress, and I think that that's one of the most uh fascinating and interesting things about you is your story about how you came to be. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, you know, the very short version of a couple decades of career is I grew up in a um, household of a single parent. My father was an alcoholic. We left my dad. My mom raised three girls on her own. I'm the oldest. And so I had to start working early. And one out of two people in the United States have their first job in hospitality. So, you know, working in a restaurant as a teenager isn't that unique. What was unique is, one, that it was Hooters, so that makes it a little bit polarizing sometimes for people or intriguing for people to talk about. Um, but what was also unique is that the company was growing so rapidly that very shortly after becoming a hostess and then a waitress, I had all of these other unexpected career opportunities that aren't necessarily present in your average restaurant chain that is a neighborhood pub or um, a local fast casual and uh, so I started opening restaurants around the world when I was 19, being a part of the training teams, which is what eventually led me into HR, human resources, and corporate training. And I moved up in that company as it grew from opening restaurants at 19 uh, to taking my first corporate gig at the age of 20 and becoming vice president of that company at 26. And then, you know, the rest sort of played out growing that company and then leaving and leading other companies. But that's the short version. Those feel like such brave and bold moves for someone so young to do. And um, what inside you just kind of gave you the strength to do that? I think part of it was how I was raised. Uh, the fact that I had to become a leader at such a young age at home. Um, there was not a, a partner around for my mom to help raise the kids. And so I had to take on some parental responsibilities and start working at a young age. I also was always in a leadership capacity um, once I sort of hit sports and other types of activities in school, um, captain of this or co-captain of that. And so it was a bit my nature as well as what happened with nurture and my environment. And I don't think that can be discounted. Um, I think the second piece was that because of how I was raised and the really rough background that my mom got us out of, I always wanted to escape. I wanted to be someone different and better tomorrow than I was today. I didn't want to be stuck like what I thought other people uh, would be. And some people were very happy being there for their whole lives and perpetuating the cycles in which they were raised. Um, but nothing was more horrifying to me than living that life. And so it wasn't always a good thing because sometimes I would just say yes for the sake of saying yes and not be very strategic. But for me, part of the driver um, was just wanting to learn. And then because I both had some leadership experience and I was more obsessed with learning than I was worried about failing, I said yes a lot and had a ton of opportunities. So you put those things together. And while it looks brave um, and it looks courageous, and certainly I can say that there are people who would not have said yes to those opportunities, you can't discount um, what my upbringing and what the opportunities that were afforded to me because it was a very quickly growing company, what role that played as well. So what is the relationship between alignment and autonomy? It seems hard to find an example where both exist in harmony. Mm. 
I that when I hear that, it makes me think of this phrase, freedom within the framework. And if you think of the framework as alignment, and we think of freedom as autonomy, I think they can coexist quite beautifully. However, in their extremes, they are clearly in conflict. So if you tell me you want me to be independent, move fast, fail, break things, yet when I do, I'm constantly butting up against infrastructure that is sort of violating my ability to do that, unless there is someone massaging that process, helping to navigate through the natural discord, it will be in conflict and it won't work. Um, I do believe that is in great part the role of leaders in general, but also HR people and workplace professionals to help understand where the company's trying to go, how the broader goals in the framework connect or disconnect from the individuality, and then finding a way to sort of bridge those differences so you can inch your way toward progress. Of course. So you are known for saying, if you don't, someone else will, but also for saying, just because you can doesn't mean you should. So what is the balance between those two things? Yeah. I view those uh, mantras as guardrails. I think of them as bumpers in a bowling alley. You know, they keep my bowling ball from going into the gutter. It doesn't mean I'm going to hit it straight down every time. Um, but if I remember those two things, I'm, I'm going to kind of stay out of a bad place and be more likely to get to my target. So if we don't, the competition will, or if, or if I don't, someone else will, is about having a fire in the belly. It's about that day one mindset. It's about recognizing the absolute truth, truly, that if I don't, someone else will. And if we as a company can't figure something out, the competition literally is right now. And that reinforces two incredibly important mindsets. One is the understanding that whatever you're dealing with is possible. The question is, are you going to do it or not? Someone will. And then it's about personal accountability to take action. So that's that, call it the left side of the the, the, the bowling alley or the, the bumper or the guardrail. The other side, though, is about providing harmony or balance to that. Because if all I said in my life and business was, if I don't, someone else will. I would say yes to everything. I would do everything. And there are some things we should not do as individuals, as companies, as industries. Um, so the, the other statement, the other mantra is about balancing that out by saying just because I can do something does not mean I should. It's about discipline. It's about recognizing that we all have finite resources, whether you're an enormous company or a teeny tiny one-person startup. Um, there is only so much of whatever you have. And it is my responsibility to deploy that into the things that have the highest return on effort. And so those are you know, those are just my my little guardrails. And of course, they conflict with each other or they wouldn't be guardrails. The point is to not be too extreme on either side and find a way to be conscious around those mindsets and make sure if you're getting too far to one side, you're bringing forward the other. It seems like uh, everything in moderation yeah. is almost similar to that. Um, so the Silicon Valley model of move fast and break things is... Um, souring after multiple scandals and kind of revelations of what they've actually broken, um, you know, privacy for one. So should leaders still be seeking to accelerate change? I think leaders are are not the people in charge of change. <laughs> and to say should a leader accelerate change or not, um, maybe puts a, a 
mistaken set of beliefs of responsibility and capabilities on a leader. The world is changing at an accelerating pace. What's missing or what was missing and now is being called out and brought to light from that move fast and break things model is a connection to consequences and then a conscience around them. And the world is going to continue to move fast. It's just the nature of the fact that technology is now underpinning everything. It literally, computational capability gets faster and faster and exponential and all of those um, scientific descriptions of the curves. Um, the question is, again, just because you can do something does not mean you should. Just because something can move as fast or can be as connected or you can make money onto something doesn't mean that you should. And that the consciousness around that and then the connection of what is the consequence and how does that connect to or take away from my objectives and at what point is something a net negative. And really it goes to this super meta higher, higher order mindset of what are we here to do? And if what we're here to do is the old school um, only create value for shareholders, sort of the, you know, the, the, the sick illness part of capitalism, um, then it will lead us to doing things without having a consciousness around consequences. If there is a redefinition of what we're here to do, which includes building profitable businesses so we can continue to lift people in the world out of poverty and create innovation and all of those things with a mindset around impact. Um, that starts to close the gap of what the move fast and break things model has now revealed exists in Silicon Valley. Interesting. Um, what is a hackathon for those <laughs> who have never experienced one and why are they effective at encouraging innovation? So a hackathon is um, a activity born out of the startup encoder community essentially. And it is a, um, a session. It can be a week long, it can be a day long, but in general, typically it's 24 hours. And you put together skilled people. Um, it can be a combination of disparate stakeholders, atypical teams, and you give them a problem and they hack it. And so it's the positive side of hacking. Uh, you give them a problem, you give them a fixed time frame, set some guardrails, but very few rules, and they come up with solutions. And then at the end of the hackathon, you have a series of solutions to very real problems. You have empowered team members who have been encouraged to be creative, who have built new connections uh, with each other, and a different mindset around how individuals as well as teams can work in the company. It's so typical in the coding world. Like you get a bunch of smart hackers together and say, go hack this system. Let's see who can figure out how to break in. Um, but companies can use this to solve any type of challenge. It can be to solve a problem or it can be to address an unmet market opportunity. It could be um, we're struggling to figure out how we improve our parental leave program affordably. Get a bunch of people together because in that process, not only will they share ideas and different solutions, but they're also going to become educated on the very real friction and challenge to doing that at the optimal level. So there's this deep, deep cultural benefit to having internal scrappy hackathons. And you can give a prize of pizza or whatever. Um, could be money, could be their name on the menu item if you're trying to solve for coming up with a product. Um, 
but the cultural impact, in addition to actually having solutions that are actionable that people now own because it came from them, is probably the bigger benefit. That sounds like a process that's both rewarding for the company and the individual contributor. So. Totally. You are a role model to countless women and men. Um, I'm curious, who are your role models? First is my mom. You know, she, raising three girls now as a mom of a two-year-old and a newborn, I don't know how she did it. I mean, I really don't. Um, And the fact that she not only found a way to break our family out of a negative cycle and be resilient enough to support us on her own and do it without complaining and with grace became this, um, it became this example for me. And I didn't realize it at the time. It is just what I became to, you know, it's what I came to expect of myself and of other leaders. Uh, So that number one. Um, Others who inspire me or who I look up to are interestingly people who are behind the scenes because I grew up in in that job. Um, I grew up waiting tables and cleaning tables and um, serving others. And when I see, because I travel so much, people working in airports, cleaning bathrooms, um, hauling luggage in freezing or crazy hot temperatures outside and everybody moving about, you know, just benefiting from this machine of effort. Uh, And then you think about those individuals, the work they're doing, what they're paid, and in some cases, not always, but what it even takes for them to get to that place and to get home, um, bussing into major cities, the amount of work, the amount of resilience, the amount of I have to do this because um, is so humbling and inspiring and um, something that I keep in mind a lot. How does an individual repay that work on a day-to-day basis? You know, I think there are a couple ways. One, something that's very consistent with O.C. Tanner is gratitude. You know, just seeing people, right? I see you. The amount of times that I am in an airport or a mass transit hub and no one looks at the person who's emptying the trash or cleaning the bathroom or... um, hauling out your luggage in sleet out to the airport. The amount of times I see them not being seen blows my mind. So an individual can start by expressing gratitude, even if you have no power, no authority, no compensation forms, just I see you and I'm grateful for you. One, it demonstrates a deep level of respect, um, which individuals in service roles often don't get. And it can be the bright spot in that person's day, and it is free. You know, there's so many small things, and I think that's number one. The second is, of course, if you are in a position of power and authority to progressively improve conditions and cultures and systems for those who, uh, without their work, your business would not exist, you should be doing that. So shifting gears a little bit here, what advice do you have for someone who's trying to change or influence their workplace culture? Two rules, you know, know yourself and know your audience. That underpins everything. I could give you one answer and it would work in one situation with certain personality types and cultures and it would be the worst possible advice in another company. Uh, So I would say start there and be honest about your own reputation 
your own capabilities to influence, but also don't undercut your ability to influence. You know, on one hand, be candid about how you're viewed and what relationship capital you have as an individual, but also don't believe you're powerless uh, because those who think things and then don't say them aren't creating change. And one of my favorite phrases is, if you're going to have a seat at the table, you'd better use your voice again or someone else will. You're just blocking a seat if you don't. So I would say that the um, the first step is making sure you're harnessing whatever influence and power you do have. The second is we all know that change starts at the top. But it's not always true that the person or the leadership at the top is aligned with what change needs to happen. And sometimes you can't convince people with words. You have to give them experiences. So instead of having a meeting where you do a presentation and you show worker conditions, get them in a car and take them to the worker conditions, right? Like experiences move us so deeply and allow people to have their own experience. So they're not allowing themselves or others to to be distanced from the reality. I have learned to create experiences. I spend very little time trying to convince people in meetings, in presentations. I say, let's get this person in here or let's go to the store or let's go meet with that franchisee because I don't need to sell them then, right? They're seeing what I'm seeing. And it's a hack. It is a way to really accelerate buy-in from the top if you don't believe it exists today. Also, be prepared that maybe there is buy-in at the top and you're not aware of other things that might be getting in the way and they need you to help solve those problems. Um, The second is understand context and have priorities. You can't fix everything tomorrow. I want to change everything tomorrow, everything. I want to change everything about my company. I want to change everything about my franchise system, about laws, about the world, but I can't. Um, I have to focus on what I can change and be really clear on one or two things I want to impact first and and go deep and give people those experiences and show impact. Then guess what? When I bring up the next thing, not only will I have relationship credibility, I'll have a history of making positive impact. People will be much more likely to trust me and will be more likely to move things forward. How can individual contributors be intentional about the cultures they work in every day and kind of improving those workplace cultures? So as an individual, you have two paths. You can focus on finding the culture that is just your nirvana uh, or shaping the culture you're in. And of course, sometimes there's a little bit of a hybrid of the two. And if your leader changes, if your role changes, sometimes what was your nirvana culture all of a sudden becomes something now you feel you either need to change or leave. Um, So again, the first is know yourself. And one of the things I coach individuals on quite often is being honest and having perspective around what they want. Because sometimes that is shaped by very superficial beliefs and examples. And when we dig deep, they really aren't connected to the why, whether it's around comp or the brand or what it stands for or how they're treated or how much flexibility they have or whatever. Um, Sometimes their attachment to a certain type of culture is coming from a place that's not deeply rooted. And when it's just pushed on slightly, it falls apart. And I encourage people to really dig deep and find out what in order to figure out what culture is best for you, it's better to not answer the question, what culture do I want? But what do you need to be your best self? 
That's it. Like, what do you need to be your best self? Do you need structure? Do you need freedom? Do you need creativity? Do you need um, parent-like leadership? You know, you really need to be honest about the things you need, and then you can find the cultures or help contribute those things to cultures that you're in. Uh, So first, similar to my other advice, know yourself and be honest about it. Uh, Second is start small. If you work for six months building a presentation for something you think your team or your division or your company should do differently, by the time you even build it, the need is passed and it's not the way to get things done. Just do it, right? If you think your culture isn't celebratory enough, go host a small celebration and then talk about it. If you think your culture doesn't recognize enough, start recognizing people and then talk about the benefits of that and let that feed an initiative. If you think your culture is um, not aligned with what the leaders are saying, give an example, right? This, this is where the small business startup mindset comes into play. Just do your own small version and then get some energy and attention around that instead of begging or being frustrated to make a big ship change. How are workplaces today different than they were a decade ago? And how do you think that they will be different a decade from today? So a decade ago, um, you know, I think there was more of a separation between um, environmental, political, and business topics. Um, Those things have collided in both beautiful and almost violent ways. Um, that's clearly different. What is what is happening in business, what is expected of business. Uh, so that's one. Uh, the second is radical transparency, <laughs> whether it's the Me Too movement or um, evaluating how diverse um, banks and investors are uh, to calling out racial disparity or income inequality, you know, the rat, the, the bright shining light of the court of public opinion is, to quote a movie from the 80s, like 1.21 gigawatts. It is so, <laughs> so bright. That's Back to the Future for those who are too young to know. Um, like, it's so bright. And bigger companies obviously are are more susceptible to that bright light than small. And and so those are two ways in which just 10 years, if you put the two workplaces up side by side, we could talk about like office design and generational differences and all that. There's, you know, in certain types of offices, there's always been a couple generations working together, at least for the last few decades. What's radically different are those two things that I just mentioned. Um, so then what will that mean in the next 10 years? Um, I think, and and maybe there's a third thing that's different, uh, that is this whole concept of the gig economy, contract workers, independence, and how it clicks into the larger construct of a company. Uh, That is the thing I think will continue at an exponential rate, Um, whether it's ad hoc work, specialist contractors, that, you know, that just, I don't see that slowing down. And companies needing to figure out how to navigate that. In some industries, you can't, right? If you're a restaurant and you need a waitress, somebody can't do that from Bangalore if your restaurant is in Lexington. 
Um, but there, there are more and more options for people to augment their work or have 100% of their work be from contract work. And that is blowing up everything. It's blowing up people's driving patterns, their purchasing patterns. It's blowing up the consumer landscape as well as the employment and HR landscape. So I think that's, you know, the political integration and environmental integration with business that will continue at a steady rate. But I think what really accelerates is just what are workers? What is a worker? You know, look at what is happening around the world with laws and are they your employee or are they not? And what do you owe to them? if they are or if they are not. Uh, that, that like, you know, mind blow emoji. <laughs> um, that, that's going to be radically different in the next 10 years. Well, we will see. Kat, it's been amazing speaking with you. Thank you so much for this conversation and for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Now it's time for Tangible Takeaways, where we take big ideas to boot camp and yell at them until they're well-oiled machines built for one purpose and one purpose only, improving workplace culture. The first is to question success more than you question failure. With mistakes, it's often pretty easy to see what went wrong, hindsight and all that. But when things are successful, We often just crack open the champagne and pat everyone on the back without examining why it worked. Maybe it was successful by accident or in spite of something we did that should have derailed it. Our instinct is to draw a straight line between our actions and the big win, even though it might have succeeded for a totally different reason. The second is that if you're looking to convince leadership that cultural change is needed, give them experiences, not presentations. Take them to the problem rather than bringing the problem to them, literally. As Kat puts it, instead of having a meeting where you do a presentation and you show worker conditions, get them in the car and take them there. First-hand experiences matter and could be a secret weapon in the fight for better workplace culture. The third is that hackathons beat brainstorms any day. One is a timed attack that empowers teams to be creative, question the status quo, and work together to create real solutions to real problems. And the other is a thinly veiled vanity project for people who want to appear creative without doing any of the work themselves. That's right, brainstorms. You sound like a natural disaster because you are one. Next on Hot Takes from the Workplace, is moving forward the most passive-aggressive phrase in the English language? That's it for this episode of The Workplace. If you liked it, or even if you didn't, please rate, review, and of course, subscribe to The Workplace on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was written and produced by yours truly with editing and original music by Daniel Foster Smith, who also composed our theme song. If you have a burning question about workplace culture or a story about why your workplace culture is the best or worst, send it to theworkplace at octanner.com. 
The Workplace is sponsored by O.C. Tanner, the global leader in engaging workplace cultures. O.C. Tanner's Culture Cloud provides a single, modular suite of apps for influencing and improving employee experiences through recognition, career anniversaries, well-being, leadership, and more. If you want your organization to become a place where people can't wait to come to work in the morning, visit octanner.com.